you, you take our shame and bring rest. Thank you for the rest that's in this place right now. We look really to you as you're looking upon us. And we want to grab a hold of, be changed by the words that you have for us to hear today. So prepare our hearts, pray that you'd hide Brandon behind the cross. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Hey, how are you guys doing today? Hope you guys are enjoying the weather. I got a chance to go out and check out Tulip Time yesterday. It was a blast. My first Tulip Time, actually. Um, I grabbed this. I think I saw it hiding. So I have to say it seems a little cliche to me to bring in the newlywed youth pastor to talk about sex, but that's our passage today. And I think, though, I kind of drew the, uh, the short straw because our passage today isn't just about sex, but it's two chapters on church discipline that center on at least the chapter titles in my Bible are on incest, lawsuits, and sexual immorality. Um, whew. So if you guys think that's rough, um, and I'm one of them, come <laughs> imagine the East Campus next week when I get to do it all over again as a Mother's Day message. <sighs> hey, you know what though? 1 Corinthians 7 is coming for you guys, and that's not exactly your typical Mother's Day message either. Um, that's part of just doing a series, is we get it to, to preach the full counsel of God. And we're in it, we're in 1 Corinthians, this is where it falls, so this is what we're going to preach. Um, we're going to do something today called snorkel preaching. I'm guessing most people have never heard of snorkel preaching, and that is because I made it up. So the difference between snorkel preaching, or the, really the distinction of it, is I was thinking about scuba diving and snorkeling. And when you scuba dive, you go kind of just straight down, you've got a target, and you go down deep, and you hang out there. But with snorkeling, you're kind of hanging out, and you're covering a wider area of things. You're looking at it from the top. And that doesn't mean that we're going to kind of have just a superficial message with no depth. But what it does mean is that um, it's going to give you guys a chance to go home and go deeper in several different areas. We've got two chapters to cover. um, And so I want you guys to be able to take it home and dive in. And really, the motivation behind that is that Scripture is like food, okay? It's best consumed daily. Scripture is best consumed daily. In the same way that we can't eat a week's worth of calories in just a single meal and call the week done, A 30-minute sermon will never feed you for an entire week, or even an hour-long one if you're at Crossroads. It won't feed you. So let's dive in. We're going to look at a couple things here. We're going to look first at the sickness that's plaguing the Corinthian church. What's wrong with it? What's kind of the disease that's underneath the surface? And then we're going to look at three cures, three prescriptions that Paul lays out for us to deal with that sickness. So open up in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. While you guys are turning there, in order for us to really understand this, we understand that Paul has been called in. And Paul has, has found out that there's really a big problem going on in the Corinthian church. And for us to really understand how big a problem it was, we need to understand where this church is located. I won't spend a lot of time on it. I think every single message in this series, we've talked about Corinth and what it was like. Let's just say Corinth was like Amsterdam red light district. Okay, Corinthian girl was synonymous with prostitute in that day. This is a vile place. And it's to this place where Paul finds out the worldliness that's in the church, and he says, it's the kind of worldliness that even, I'm not just shocked by it, but the Corinthians would be shocked by this. 
In 5, verse 1, he says, It is actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. Even the Corinthians wouldn't tolerate this kind of stuff. And it's important to note that as we step into some very specific, blush-worthy sins, that these are just examples of a deeper problem. Okay, these sins that Paul points out, these couple of instances of what's going on in the church, it's just highlighting that there's a deeper problem underneath. And that's that the church is still worldly. We've seen it through the first four chapters that the church has immorality. It still looks like the world. They look like practical non-Christians. And these sins are just specific examples of that. And so while we read these and while we look at these, we need to be asking, okay, maybe I don't struggle with this specific thing, but how is there worldliness in my heart? How is there worldliness in our church? How do we not look distinct? So going back to 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to read a little bit, but we're going to be bouncing in and out of a lot of different scripture. And I don't want to make you guys stand and sit and stand and sit. I think you'll look like a congregation full of meerkats. So we are just going to stay seated in your heart. Stand for this. All right. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1. We're going to start over. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of the fellowship the man who's been doing this? Skipping down to 6, chapter four, or verse 4. Therefore, if any of you have disputes on such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge disputes between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. And so we hear, see here there's the first example of incest, and then there's brother suing brother. And I'm not going to read on, but there's a whole bunch of other sins that are listed here. Immorality is the enemy of the church. Immorality is the cancer of the church. It's the enemy of purity. And so this first one, or the second one rather, let's talk about lawsuits real quick. We're going to really snorkel over this one, okay? It's catching on, snorkel preaching. I'm just going to keep feeding it until it gets coined as a term here. But Paul is basically, I know it's cheesy, Paul is basically saying that um, the Corinthians care more about themselves than they do about their brothers and sisters. That's why they're suing them. They care more about getting what they deserve than they care about loving their brothers and sisters. And he thinks this is really a mark of immaturity. And I'm glad that we don't struggle with this today. I'm glad that lawsuits are really rare in America that people never really wrestle with this mentality that's like, I got to get mine. I'm going to get what's owed to me no matter what and no matter who it comes from. I got to take care of myself. Look out for number one. So instead of focusing on lawsuits, I thought maybe we'd take the one that seems even less applicable. This case of incest. Here this man is basically what's going on is that a man has taken his mother into the bedroom. But it's not his mother, it's his stepmother. It's his father's wife. And now I'm thankful to be a part of a church that I can look out at and say, I don't really see this as a big issue for us. But remember, these are sins that are pointing to a deeper problem that there's worldliness in our hearts and that we don't really look different from the world, that immorality has crept in. And so before we even leave the topic of incest, we need to ask, is incest a problem in our church today? And if you're thinking no and you're shaking your head no, 
then we're living with our heads in the sand. Incest is a huge problem in the church. To call it even a problem is like calling the Grand Canyon just a ditch. Or calling the mighty Mississippi, oh, that's just a creek somewhere. Incest is a gigantic problem in the church today. But it's the 21st century, so we call it something different, and we call it sexual abuse. And I'm a little hesitant to preach on this. In fact, I don't relish it. Um, I've never heard a sermon on this in my life. There's a Christian counselor who specializes in this, and he talks about just the fact that the church never talks about it and what, what a black eye that is. He was once asked by a denomination, can you come in and can you just speak with a few pastors about this issue? He talks about how, you know, it took him like five minutes to pick his jaw up off the floor because the church never wants to talk about sexual abuse. And so he heartily, heartily agreed. He flew out there really excited. He was going to get a chance to speak to the church. And when he showed up, there was a hundred pastors in the room and he was floored. And he started trying to get to know these pastors and saying, you know, like, how long have you been in ministry? And he started asking around and they found out that the average age was about 20 years of ministry experience for each person. So the next question he asks is, you know, how many of you guys have ever preached a sermon on sexual abuse? Wait, how many of you have ever preached a sermon with the word sexual and abuse in it, even if it was just a passing comment? How many of you guys? And of those 100 pastors, two hands went up. That's so disappointing. And for us to really see how disappointing it is, I'm kind of a math guy. I like math. Let's talk math here for a second. 100 pastors, 20 years of average experience. That's 2,000 years of pastoral experience. And if we take a conservative number, in many denominations, pastors preach multiple times a, a week. And I think this was probably one of them. But let's just be conservative. Let's say 50 sermons a year. That's one, one, ep, or one sermon a week with a two-week vacation in there. 50 sermons a year times 2,000 years of experience is 100,000 sermons conservatively preached. And two hands went up. And I don't care if those two individuals preached every single sermon that they ever gave on this issue. It's still just a drop in the bucket. And I think for a lot of us, we think this is just a Catholic church problem. It's a Protestant problem too. But more than that, it's a family problem. I want to give you guys a couple statistics. One out of four girls, one out of four, before they turn 18, will be sexually assaulted. One out of six boys, before they turn 18, will be assaulted. And it's not just children either. This is happening to adults too. There's a statistic, there's a, an organization called the National Victim Center, and they found that 1.3 women... This is over the age of 18. 1.3 women in the United States alone are forcibly raped every minute. Every minute. That's 78 an hour, 1,871 a day, or 683,000 women a year. This is a gigantic problem. And I'm talking about a lot of times these are known people. Eight out of ten of those rape cases are people who are either relatives or very close to the family. Someone that the assailant knew personally, or the victim knew personally. One out of four girls. One out of six boys. This is a giant problem. And when I hear those statistics, I'm sure you guys are asking the same questions that I'm asking. How can I make sure that this never happens to anyone that I love? How can I guarantee their safety? And the hard reality is that you can't. 
It happens too frequently and from people who are often too close to this situation. But there are things that we can do to dramatically, dramatically lessen the odds. And I want us to be a church that knows what to look for. I want us to be a church that's on guard for this. And so I want to give us a few things to look for. I want to talk about the four stages of sexual abuse really briefly. And when I do that, I want this to be not just for parents to listen to. I want this not just for grandparents, uncles, relatives to listen to. I want this for singles and for couples and for every person in this room. We need to be a church that's on guard for this issue. A church that refuses to stay silent on it. A church that refuses to let it happen. A church that rallies to the side of victims. So with that in mind, let me give us the four stages. First stage of sexual abuse is that there's a group of people and an individual gets kind of thinned from the herd. They get selected out. And that individual, by someone from with, that has more power, begins to receive special privileges, gifts, maybe secrets are shared. And it looks a lot like this. Like, don't tell the other kids that I didn't make you turn in your homework. Like, it'll just be our little secret. I know there's been a lot going on in life. And so, you know what? Like, I just want to be here for you. I want to be a support. And it looks something like that. And a special bond is formed, a uniqueness where it's kind of everyone else and then it's these two that are sharing that. And from there, the next stage is that physical touch is introduced. And when I say physical touch, I want you to think like a little tussle of the hair, a pat on the back, a hug, really good physical touch. And we're physical beings. The largest organ on our body is our skin. Physical touch is good. And if it stops here, boy, what a blessing. It's good for people to have others in their corner just championing them and being there in their corner and helping them. But more often than not, it begins to progress into stage three. And in stage three, that physical touch takes on a little different nature. Okay? What I mean by that is a hug that just lingers a little too long. I don't know how long a hug is supposed to go, but there's definitely a point where you're like, that's a little weird. If you're a long hugger, maybe not. Um, So it begins to take on a little different tinge. That glance begins to get a little kind of weird with it, a little creepy with it. And the boundaries are pushed, and whether subconsciously or consciously, the abuser is beginning to see, like, is the child or is the victim going to push me away? Are they going to stay silent or are they going to go tell somebody? And those boundaries begin to get pushed back further and further until by stage four there's full-blown sexual abuse happening. We need to be a church that's on guard for this stuff. Scholars think that this case in Corinth, this case of this man who was taking his stepmother into the bedroom with him, that he wasn't called out because he had power, status, money, influence. Basically, he was the kind of person that was above those kind of accusations or corrections. This is something we can't afford to do with this issue. We need to realize that we can never overlook somebody because of their status or position. I mean, you take Jerry Sandusky. Guy like started a foundation to help kids. Why in the world could we ever accuse him of something like that? And oftentimes the abuser will flat out tell the victim, who's going to believe you over me? Are you kidding? They'll never take your word over me. You know who I am? I heard a frightening, frightening statistic that 90-some percent of abusers who have money, power, status, intelligence, don't ever get caught because people are afraid to challenge them. We cannot let that be us. Let me say just one last thing and then we're going to leave this topic. I know in a church this size, and it breaks my heart that there are hundreds of people in here 
hundreds of people in our church, statistically speaking, that are victims of sexual abuse. And I want to tell you, there's hope. There's healing. There's redemption. There's restoration. It's a hard road. Anyone who tells you differently is lying, but there's hope. And I want to just challenge you. Get people, if you're wanting to work through this process, get people around you. You can't do it on your own. You need people who can grieve with you, love with you, people who can spot lies and patterns that you're living in, people who are safe. Let me give you a couple of resources real quick. Dan Allender is a Christian counselor who is phenomenal. He specializes in this area. He writes a book called A Wounded Heart. It's awesome. Does conferences all over the country. Diane Langberg has written some really great books on this subject too. And right here in Michigan, we have an organization. I've never worked with them personally, but I've heard really good things. And it's called Open Hearts Ministries. They have a program, I think it's called SALTS. But backing up to Corinth now. Remember, this is, the sickness with them is that they look like the world. And then we might look like the world in different ways than they do. But we need to be asking, how does the church look right now? How do we look? Are we that different than the world? Divorce, alcoholism, domestic violence, abuse, they're rampant in the church and no one's really talking about them. So let's talk about it today. What are the the cures? What are the prescriptions that Paul lays out for this? He gives three. And I want us to note that these are individuals who are sinning in the church. It's a a man and a woman. It's another brother taking another brother to, uh, to court. But Paul seems very little to be cared with correcting them specifically and speaking to how the church as a whole, should be responding. It's individual sin, but it's corporate solutions. It's family solutions. And Paul captures this in 1 Corinthians 12, just a few chapters later when he talks about how we're a body, guys. Right here, all of us, we are a body with many members, different functions, different gifts, talents, abilities, but we're all to function with a unified purpose. And in the same way that if my left arm gets cut, and my left arm is hurting, I'm going to go and my feet are going to carry me and my arm is going to get a bandage and bandage it up. The body needs to respond when one member is hurt. If there's cancer that's in just a couple of cells, we don't tolerate it because, oh, I've got billions of cells and this is just a few. No, we know that cancer is going to spread out. And so we need to step into this situation. We need to be a break out of our individualized lives and get with Galatians 5 that talks about bearing one another's burdens. So the first thing here, is that if we're going to be a healthy church, if we're going to be a healthy church, we need to be a church that judges well. If we're going to be a healthy church, we need to be a church that judges well. And I'm going to, I know that's weird. And I know if you guys are like me, you're a little skittish with the word judge, judging, judgment, any of those things. I've heard and known far too many Christians to not be skittish with that word. But what do we do with sections of scripture like this? In 5.3, it says here, for my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who's been doing this. In fact, Paul tells the whole church to judge if we skip down to verse 11. But now I'm writing this to you, that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, slanderer, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Now I want us to realize too that this is likely because they just talked about the Passover, it's talking about church discipline. This is likely do not share the Lord's Supper, not don't go out to dinner with them. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are we not to judge those inside? 
God will judge those outside. This is where we've gone wrong for centuries. The church points the finger at the world and says, you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong, you're sinful in this, this, and this. Well, we allow all kinds of just vile things to go on within our own bodies. Expel the wicked person from among you. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people, that's us, will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? What do we do with this passage? I'm going to argue that passages of scripture like this provide the needed balance in the full perspective with passages like Matthew 7. Do not judge or you too will be judged. You see, on one side of it, if you only take one of those passages and you grab it out of context of the whole of Scripture, it looks like moral relativism on one side. We have a church that is afraid to call out any sin and anybody and what's true for you might not be true for me. And we're afraid to ever call anything sin. And on the other side, We've got a bunch of people with their index finger out like this and they're constantly walking around just critical, pointing the finger at everybody in a judgmental way. We become Pharisees. That's why scripture is really careful and it gives us a balance. And it gives us both sides of this tension that we need to walk in. Just a few verses after Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged, he gives the famous example about the speck and the plank. Or the plank and the speck, I should say. But we stop after he says, take the plank out of your own eye. And we don't realize that what it says is first. And whenever there's a first in the Bible, you know that there's a second coming. Get the plank out of your own eye. And then, here's the second part, then you will see clearly to remove the speck. We're still to be helping others with specks. But we need to worry about our own plank too. I mean, a few verses before this passage that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians about judging, he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. He's got that same tension. But my guess is that as a church today, most of us, myself included, we're more comfortable with passages like this. I don't even judge myself. That seems consistent with the message of the world that says, you worry about you, I'll worry about me. What's true for me might not be true for you. And don't worry about any of the sins in my life because, I'm, I mean, they're all relative. The only absolute is that you have absolutely no right to judge me. That's the exact kind of thinking that leads to incest, lawsuits, sexual immorality, all the stuff that we're talking about here. And I want to give you guys a little clue. Worldviews and philosophies are like free furniture by the side of the road. Okay? Worldviews and philosophies are like free furniture by the side of the road. Okay? There's a reason somebody put it out there. And if it seems too good to be true, it likely is. And what people want you to think is that all moral relativists, all atheists have somehow sat down at college or after college and they've looked at all the evidence and they've flipped through it and they've objectively said, you know what? Moral relativism is true. And I don't think a lot of them did that. In fact, there's a famous atheist. His name is Aldous Huxley. And he lived a couple decades ago. He was a famous atheist in England. And he was actually brave enough to tell people the real rationale behind why he became an atheist. He said he got to college. He did the same thing that every guy when he gets to college does. His eyes got real big and he started looking around and he was like, there are a lot of pretty women here. There's a lot of pretty girls. And old Aldous, 
he decided that he didn't want to live by Christian morality anymore. But he didn't want to feel shame for dating all of these girls and for sleeping around. And so for him, he realized that if he believed there wasn't a God, it let him off the hook. And he could do whatever he wanted. And he talks about it in his book. It's like, you think it was objective? No, I had big personal stakes in this. We need to be very leery and very suspect of any philosophy or worldview that's inherently self-serving. The postmodern view that allows all truth to be relative allows a person to imbibe in any kind of sin that they want, anything the heart really desires. And sure, people will say, well, there's the caveat out there of as long as you're not hurting anyone. But that's based off a false presupposition. That's based off the notion that there's such thing as a victimless crime. Okay, there is no such thing as a victimless sin if we take Scripture seriously. 1 Corinthians 12, we talked about it. We're a body. Different members, different parts, different functions, different passions. We need each other. We need every one of you out there. And you take a sin that people look at and they like to say, oh, I'm not hurting anyone. Take pornography, for example. It's just me and my computer, me and my magazine or whatever. I'm not hurting anybody. But what happens with pornography is it's actually really effective at killing shame and contempt and those things. And people use it to medicate that stuff all the time. But it doesn't stop there. Pornography numbs out all the senses and it kills joy, kills compassion. It dulls empathy and sympathy. And so never mind the hours that are being spent in front of a computer instead of pouring into the body. What happens is that when the person joins the body, it's kind of like the arm that's just dangling there. It's going through numb. It's not really caring for people. It's not really pressing in. It's not able to do its job. And we need you. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. Going back to that idea of just of judgment that we're talking about here, society crumbles when there is no judgment, when there's no discipline. I mean, I see Randy over there who was a judge for a long time. Society without some kind of judicial system is anarchy. But the key is that society isn't based off a bunch of individuals running around, pointing the finger, doing vigilante justice. It's done as a unit. And the church here is supposed to do the discipline. The church here is supposed to be functioning as a unit, not just a bunch of individuals going around pointing out a finger. And it's shaped by the realization that we've all blown it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. There is no one in here who is perfect. So we judge not because we have everything perfect in our life, but because we love. Because we love. We're bold enough to call someone out on sin even when it's hard, even when it's uncomfortable because we know it's the loving thing to do. They're missing out on their fullness of a relationship with God, the abundant life. They're sabotaging their witness. Paul calls it out in 5 verse 1 and 6 verse 6 and other places that they're doing all this in front of unbelievers. They're killing their witness. They're missing out on blessings. And James 5 talks about just the, the value in when a brother can turn another brother away from sin. So we judge because we love. And we do it not in haughtiness, but we do it even with a spirit of love. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't just a passage on love so that we can read it at weddings and funerals. It shapes how we even do things like this. So if we're going to be a healthy church, we need to be a church that judges well that judges in love. Second thing, if we're going to be a healthy church, we must love enough to discipline well. 
If we're going to be a healthy church, we must love each other enough to be willing to discipline. This is what keeps us from being judgmental in the traditional sense. It's a commitment to help people really experience, to walk alongside, not to just say, you've got sin in your life, but I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to help you in any way, even when it's hard, even when there's some discipline involved. I'm going to show you that the gospel is better than life. And keep in mind that when we're talking about church discipline, we're not talking about the person who just slips up once. We're talking about the individual who claims to be a Christian, who says, you know what, I want to go God's way, but I also want to go my way. And I'm willfully choosing that I want to continue to engage in this sinful practice over and over again. This passage is for that person who wants to try to do both. And God makes it really clear you can't serve two masters. And I also want to point out, I know discipline is hard. And I imagine that there's a bunch of people out there feeling like, who's the church to think that they can discipline? Our government is important in legal courts. Those legal courts punish wrongdoers. They get their authority from the government. They're the ones who should do it. And yeah, courts get their authority from the government. But God gives them that authority. Romans talks about that. Gives the government the authority. But God also gives us authority too. In 5 verse 12, talks about God calling us to this task. He says, are you not to judge those inside, inside the church? The implied answer there is a strong yes. God will judge those outside. Expel the immoral person from among you. Skip down to 6 verse 2. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And with this, we need to note there's a difference between discipline and punishment. I worked as a counselor before this um, for a little bit. And I remember working with an individual whose father was a little off. And any time that this individual did something that his father didn't like, His dad would make him go out in the hot sun. He'd give him a shovel in the backyard and he'd say, dig me a hole. I want it four foot by four foot by four foot, a perfect cube. And it takes hours to do something like that. And his dad would come out there and he'd take the measuring tape. And if it was off by even an inch, start over. And then he'd get done with this hole and his dad didn't say, okay, now let's plant a tree in here so you can remember this and all that. His dad would say, fill it in. And any time that his dad was displeased with something, he'd take joy in watching his son out there in the back just digging this hole. And there's a difference because discipline isn't sadistic like that. Discipline is redemptive. It has a purpose. It works in a person's life for good. Discipline is rooted in love. Hebrews 12 talks about the fact that the Lord disciplines those that he loves and he's called as his children. Discipline always has a purpose, and namely it's redemption. 5.5 talks about this. It talks about, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Let me pause there for real fast. This isn't talking about physical death. This is talking about death of the sin nature. Anytime Paul talks about the spirit um, versus the, the flesh, he's talking about our old nature versus our new. The nature that's oriented towards God and the nature that's oriented towards what we want. In other words, he's just saying the same thing as he's saying in 5.2 and 5.13. We need to exclude this person from the church. But there's a reason why. So that, so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. Discipline is always in the, ben- the offender's best interest. It's so that he or she might see the error of their ways. 
that they, their spirit, that before the judgment day of the Lord, they would get just a foreshadowing it, of it from the church. That they begin to see like, boy, I don't want this. And while there's still time, I want to turn. And we see it two verses later that discipline also has another purpose. It's not just for the individual, but for the church. In 570, he says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. Discipline is for the community as well. Paul emphasizes that though this is just a little part, it's just one person, that if this willful sin is left unchecked, it'll go through the whole batch. Like leaven through, through dough, it will go through the entire thing. Sin in our hearts that we choose and we think, boy, it's not that big a deal. It works its way through our whole self. And if left unchecked, it works through the whole community too. Now, I've got a lot more I want to say on discipline, but we just don't have time. And so I'm just going to let Jesus speak. He's saying the same thing as Paul here. Um, If this is the longest section on church discipline, then Jesus' part in Matthew 18 is the most famous. Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Just as a real practical aside, before we leave the topic of church discipline, if we're going to be a church that does it well, we need to be open to correction in our own lives. How are you doing at that? Do you take correction and discipline and rebuke as an instrument in your sanctification, as something that's making you more holy, making you better, or as an insult to your pride? This leads me to the third and final cure that we're going to look at. If we're going to be a healthy church, we must be a church of changed people. If we're going to be a healthy church, we need to be transformed individuals. Corinth is a church that's consumed with spiritual gifts. They're consumed with putting on a show instead of holiness. They're more interested in prophecy and tongues than they are in purity and obedience. And Paul calls them out on it. Does that sound familiar though? Again, I'm glad the American church isn't like that. I'm glad that we don't have worship leaders all over this country who can do a great job leading worship. And small group leaders who can turn a a tiny little group into a large group. And pastors who can preach a sermon that's downloaded all around the world, but they're falling left and right publicly because they're more concerned with what they can do on a Sunday morning than they are with the personal holiness throughout the week. It's why we get the rap for being hypocrites. Anyone can film a commercial for animal rights and everyone's all excited, unless it's Michael Vick. Or Justin Bieber, for that matter. I mean, the kid just left his monkey like in a hotel room in Europe or something like that. Guys don't know about that? Oh man, that kid is going down fast. Um, The deal is that we don't trust the God. We don't really believe and trust the, the power of the gospel to change us. We don't believe that God is really serious about his moral commands. We read all this stuff in scripture about God's expectations and his call to live holy lives. The fact that we are saved by grace. Praise God. We are not trying to earn it. But we're saved for good deeds. 
And we read those moral commands and we just think, he's not, he doesn't really mean that, surely. That's why we need discipline sometimes, sometimes to get the sin out of our lives. In 6, verse 9, it's an awesome passage. It says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's not the awesome part. It's coming. But let me pause. Because it's in here, it's not a big part. I'm going to do it in one minute. But it is a big thing in our society today. This passage and at least six others or at least five others points out the fact that homosexuality is a sin issue. It is. But I want you to also take notice that it's one of about eight or nine sins listed here. Homosexuality is a sin. It is not the sin. And the church has gone wrong for centuries and centuries falling on one of two sides. One side is that the church somehow makes homosexuality different and separate or worse than other sins, and that's just flat-out unbiblical. Or the church today, the popular trend is just to kind of erase those passages from Scripture and say, oh, it's not really a big deal. God doesn't really, he doesn't take that serious. Can we please be a church that holds people accountable for sin, but doesn't heap unnecessary shame on people and act like the person who's struggling with same-sex attraction is somehow wrestling with something that's totally different and totally other than any other sin. Could please be a church that loves really well. Now back to the passage. I told you, one minute. Um, Verse 12, this is the awesome part. So he goes through this list of sins, all of these different areas. And he says, and that is what some of you were but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. That's a great place for an amen. That's the gospel. We've all gone astray, every one of us. And like the people, and we're all you know, called to, be, to not be able to inherit the kingdom of God. We're like the people who when the flood, rise, the flood was rising and they were banging on the door to Noah's ark, We're locked out. But just like how God saved mankind through one man, Noah, God sent one man, Jesus Christ, and he lived the perfect life. And he granted entry for every one of us by grace, through faith. We get to inherit the kingdom of God. And it's not just that, but in this passage, I just can't help but think that Paul's thinking of specific people when he says, and that is what some of you were. That he's thinking of people who believed the message but didn't just stop there. They turned and they repented and they left their life of sin. We need to stop playing games with sin. We need to be a church that gets the leaven out. We need to realize that the gospel has the power to deliver us from sin. This isn't a call to be perfect. This isn't saying that you'll never be tempted. That's missing it. But what it is, is it's confronting the attitude that I think that a lot of us have where we live defeated lives. We just have this defeatist mentality of like, man, I've struggled with this and I guess I'm just gonna struggle with it for the rest of my life and well, it's just one little area. It's not that big a deal and we don't really believe that that the gospel has the power to change us. Again, not make us perfect, but we need to take seriously the call to put to death, therefore, whatever is worldly. 
Colossians 3 talks about that very thing. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And for a long time, I used to think that that was just like one fell swoop, death blow, you punch sin in the face, it's over. I really wish it was that way. But when you look at that and you start looking at the Greek verb that's listed there, that verb doesn't mean a death like by sword. It's talking about a slow death through disuse. It's like when you put a a cast on your wrist and it begins to shrivel and it begins to shrink and it begins to weaken. That's what we're to do with sin. We're to stop feeding it and let it die a slow death through disuse. The gospel changes us. If we don't believe that the gospel can change us, then what are we doing here? So let me close just by asking, If Paul was writing us today, what would he say about us? If Paul was writing to you, what would he say to you? Is there worldliness in your life that you're just tolerating? What do you need to stop feeding? The Bible makes it really clear. Jesus makes it really clear. You can't serve two masters. You're going to love the one or hate the other. You can't serve both God and the old nature. Love for us to be a church that doesn't tolerate sin, that constantly points people to the gospel, the gospel that says, I don't have it all right, but I know one who does. Let's be a church who loves well enough to point people to that and to call people to that. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you're God. I thank you that none of this is perform your way to heaven. God, that you came down and you paid our debt. You took the wrath that we deserved on the cross and that now we can enter in. God, I just praise you that I've been washed, been sanctified, and I've been justified. But God, I think that more often than not, I just I find in my life and I think in our lives that we, we play games with sin when we shouldn't. God, help us to see the danger that's in that. Help us to see the abundant life that is there when we follow a God that says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The abundant life that comes from when we turn from our old ways and we stop living in the slavery to sin and we start seeking you and serving you. God, open our eyes. Challenge our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Hey, Brandon, stay close. I think what we're going to do, we're just going to flex. As you stand to your feet, this is how we're going to respond. Just a verse.